0: As we begin, let's pray together. Let me lead us in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the Word. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are a good and compassionate Father. And Lord, we come to you now because we are your children, and we pray that you would open our hearts to receive from you. Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you speak uh, true into our lives, and we pray that our hearts will be soft, uh, our hands will be quick to do your will. So, Father, help us to trust You. Father, we pray that You would encourage our hearts with Your truth. Help us to know that You are a gracious and compassionate Father. And may we draw near to You now. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're in uh, Luke 15, uh, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And this is no doubt a, a familiar passage to many of us, especially verses 11 to 32, as uh, Bay read for us. I want to begin by uh, talking about this lady, Corrie Ten Boom. I mean, some of you may know her. I mean, she's quite well-known. She's she's passed away now, but she's written some books that have been a great encouragement to many Christians. Uh, Corrie Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who lived with her sister Betsy in Holland during the Second World War. And during the war, they concealed Jews in their home to hide them from the Nazis. But then they were found out, they were arrested and sent to a concentration camp. Uh, Corrie survived the horrors of the camp, but her sister, Betsy, did not. And a few years after the war, in 1947, uh, Corrie had a chance to visit Germany to speak of God's grace and forgiveness. She was a well-known Christian writer and speaker, and they invited her to actually bring the message of the Gospel to, to Germany. And she found herself at a church in Munich, uh, and that's where she saw him. So she saw this man after the meeting, this man, a large, balding man in a grey overcoat, and then suddenly Cory remembered. So this man that she saw was a guard at the very concentration camp where she was at and, and she remembered walking past this man who was a guard at that time you know, obviously, obviously while she was at concentration camp you know, all her they took away everything from her and you know, she remembered walking past naked you know, all these lady prisoners walking past naked past this man at the concentration camp and then this man walked up to Corey after the meeting and he spoke of how God had forgiven him he spoke of how he had become a Christian. And then now, he was trying to, make a, he was trying to seek forgiveness from all the people that uh, he, he realized the Nazis had harmed during the war. So he came up to Corey, and he extended his hand to her, and he asked her, Will you forgive me? Will you forgive me? Now, in her book The Hiding Place, Corey recalls that moment and she says this. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. I stood there, I whose sins had every day to be forgiven, and could not, you know, could not forgive him. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death? simply for the asking you just ask for forgiveness just like that you now in the bible grace cannot be earned by good works i think for many of us who are christians that's not a controversial statement i think we understand that grace and works do not go together we understand that grace is freely given but I put it to us this morning that this is the very reason why so many of us find grace offensive. You know, Think about your past week. You know, I, as, I, as I was preparing this message, I think oftentimes God uses the very text that the preacher is preaching on to convict the preacher first before he brings it to the rest of us. And this week was no exception. As I was preparing this message, I was, as I was reflecting on this text, I realized that this past week I have not been gracious. I've struggled to show grace to my wife. I struggled to show grace to my children. We struggle to actually show grace to others as much as we understand about grace. You now, this radical generosity seems so unfair. You know, how can we simply forgive someone so freely? Just like that. Luke 15 addresses this question. Jesus is travelling towards Jerusalem. He teaches how we are to follow Him as His disciples. And Jesus calls His followers to show grace to the undeserving. We saw this in chapter 14. He says, When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. Uh, That's grace, isn't that? And why do we do that? Because we follow a gracious master who does the same. He invites the undeserving to his feast so that outsiders may enter into his joy. And as you can imagine, Jesus' message of radical grace begins to attract lots of people to himself. But maybe it's not the kind of people that uh, polite company would want to keep. He's attracting society's outcasts. Look at verse 1 the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. In Jesus' day, tax collectors had a bad reputation. Not only did they collect taxes for the Romans, who were foreign invaders and occupiers, many of them were also dishonest in extorting money from people. So Jesus is gathering a rather motley crew of unsavory characters, now imagine this: uh, a preacher comes into town and you go to his meetings and you find at his meetings not, re- not very respectable company, but his meetings are filled with irreligious and immoral people. You see gangsters at his meeting, loan sharks, thieves, prostitutes. Now, what would what you think of this preacher? Be honest. What would you think of this preacher? Maybe not view him in a very good light. And this is exactly what the religious teachers are thinking to themselves. Right? The, verse 2 says the, the Pharisees and the scribes grumble, saying, Hey, this man, notice how they do, they don't even say Jesus' name. They say, This man, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And such grumbling against grace has happened before, as we see in those passages on the slide. And it will happen again shortly. You know, sharing a meal indicates acceptance. So they're wondering, how can Jesus associate with such people without insisting that they clean up their act first? How can He welcome them so indiscriminately, just like that? Jesus' grace offends these self-righteous religious leaders. In fact, they view Jesus Himself with contempt, referring to Him as, this one. They wouldn't even use the, his name. They call him the one who receives sinners, the one who welcomes tax collectors. So this passage really is Jesus' response to these grumblers. Right? In verse 3, he, he tells them a parable. You notice in verse 3, it is uh, singular. He tells them a parable, singular. This means that even though Luke 15 contains three parables, we're meant to understand these three parables as one unit. Now, I know many of us are familiar with the parable of the prodigal son, and we tend to read the parable of the prodigal son, especially verses 11 to 24, as as, as just an isolated story, but actually that's not a good way to read it. It's meant to be read together with the rest of Luke 15 as one continuous argument that Jesus is making. And then when we do that, we actually see the point of the parable a lot more clearly. So that's what we try to do today. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost sons all share a common thread. Something that was lost is found, and this leads to a joyful celebration. And Jesus tells us these parables really with one goal, His goal is to teach us about God. So think about that for a moment. It means that if we struggle with self-righteousness, our problem is not just self-righteousness. Our problem is that we have a wrong view of God. Our pride and self-righteousness reveals that we are not thinking and believing rightly about God, which is quite a Staggering thing to think about. So if we, are, if we claim to be God's people, then do we really know Him? And do we resemble Him in the way He relates to sinners? So just two points about God this morning. Number one, God rejoices when the lost is found. So in the parable of the lost sheep, a shepherd leaves his 99 other sheep to search for the missing one. You know, you might, you might do the math and think, oh, you know, it's just one sheep, you still have 99, what's the big deal? Well, hopefully parents, you know, we don't think like that about our children. <laughs> if, if one of our children, if one of our child goes missing, we won't think, oh, you know, I have two or three other children. You know, like Cherming, I still have three other kids, that's okay. <laughs> I can spare one. No, we, we won't think like that because every child is precious. And, and to this shepherd, every sheep is precious. So he leaves the 99, he goes after the missing one. And this shepherd values the lost sheep. He, he, he searches until he finds it. In you know, the second half of verse 4, he then carries it home with great joy and he invites his friends and neighbours to rejoice with him. Now this shepherd is a picture of God's love and compassion for sinners like us. It's a picture of the way God sends His Son Jesus to seek and to save the lost. Friends, we were made to know God and to enjoy Him forever. We were made for this loving relationship with God. But all of us have turned away from worshipping and loving our Creator. We are lost because our sin has cut us off from the One who gives us life, from the Holy God who made us for Himself. All we like sheep have gone astray. We can't find our way back. And therefore, we need the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. The good shepherd who graciously carries us home to God. The good shepherd on whom we can lean our whole weight on. As it, it says beautifully in Isaiah 40, verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. Now perhaps that's where Jesus got the idea for his parable from. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Friends, we have this picture of God, someone who gently carries us. The shepherd's joy reflects God's joy over one sinner who repents. You know, Jesus says God takes no pleasure in those who think they are righteous and see no need to repent. You know, the 99 who see no need for repentance. Trying to be good without God actually drives us further away from Him. Pride and self-righteousness blind us to our need for Jesus. But the wonderful news is that God delights in those who see their own spiritual need? You know, think think about this. The sovereign God of the entire universe, personally, personally, rejoices over each one of us. You know, I want us to don't take don't take that for granted. Right? You know, really let the magnitude of that sink into our hearts. That the sovereign God of the universe personally takes pleasure in each one of us when we return to Him. You know, how does this correct any wrong views of God we may have? Maybe we have a view of God that is impersonal, that is aloof, you know, that He's sort of emotionless, passionless. Is that our view of God? The parable of the lost coin makes a similar point. A woman has lost one of her ten silver coins and she lights a lamp and sweeps the house and seeks diligently until she finds it. Then when she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbours and they rejoice with her. And Jesus says in verse 10, Just so, in this same way, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Both parables are revealing God's heart to us. Both parables reveal God's heart for sinners. Therefore, when Jesus welcomes sinners and eats with them, what is He doing? He is simply expressing very tangibly God's heart. Jesus has come to give God joy. And do, we, do, we, do we ever think of Jesus' ministry in that sense? Jesus comes to give God joy. Therefore, as Jesus' followers, we are to go and make disciples. Why? For the same reason, for the sake of God's joy. Friends, what a wonderful motivation for evangelism and missions. We, we give joy to God as we speak of His grace, as we tell others of Jesus. Now, speaking of Jesus should be a delight because God delights in it. Friends, I hope that we don't see evangelism and missions as mere duty. You know, frankly, mere obligation will only get us so far, it won't fill our hearts with joy. Friends, this, these verses remind us that we serve a joyful God, we, we serve a happy God who delights in sinners coming back to Him? You know, how, must, how might His joy motivate us to live for Him and to make Him known? You know, as, as we draw nearer to Christmas, let's think about ways we can share this Gospel with those around us. Let's give God joy by telling others about His Son. You know, friends, we have a wonderful God-given opportunity to share in God's joy and to share His joy with others as well. I I, I don't think it's any coincidence that Scripture says the joy of the Lord is our strength. Not the mere duty of serving God is our strength, but the joy of the Lord is our strength. Ironically, in this passage, the religious leaders who claimed To be nearest to God were actually the furthest away from Him. Why? Because by by grumbling and complaining about how Jesus ate with sinners, the religious leaders actually showed themselves to be profoundly out of step with God. They neither shared His character nor served His purpose. Friends, do we share God's heart for the lost? Do we share His joy? Let's look at our second point, which tells us more about God as well. And we're we're going to look at verses 11 to 32. God, our loving Father, calls us to return and to rejoice with Him when the lost is found. Now, the third parable, as I mentioned, is probably familiar to many of us. It is popularly, popularly known as the parable of the prodigal son but I put it to us that this is probably not a good title. It's a somewhat misleading title because I don't think the youngest son is the only point of the story. Notice how Jesus introduces the parable by saying there was a man who had two sons, which is actually a good title for the parable. Therefore, I prefer to call it the parable of the gracious father and his two lost sons. Okay, not, not very catchy, I know, but I think it's closer to the point of the parable. The parable of the gracious father and his two lost sons. The story begins with the younger son coming up rather brashly to his father and demanding his inheritance. The son wants his father's things. The son wants his father's stuff. The problem is, he doesn't want his father. He just wants his father's things. The son wants to live his own way, live his own life, and he can't wait for his father to die. Right? So he comes to his father and says, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can you give me my inheritance? That's essentially what he's saying to his father. You know, as you can imagine, this is scandalously dishonouring, especially in the culture of that day. You know, now even so, we, we see this. But friends, do we, do we, do we realise that this is how every one of us has treated God? This is how every one of us has related to God at some point in our lives. We demand that He gives us what we want. You know, we want His things, his, his created things. We want His things. We want His stuff. We just don't want Him. So sin isn't just doing something wrong or breaking an impersonal law. Sin is intensely relational. Sin is fundamentally a self-centred refusal to love, a refusal to worship, a refusal to give thanks to the one to whom we owe all things. Now what's surprising in the text is that the father says okay to his son the father grants his son's request. He divides his property between his two sons with a very surprising response. Now, typically, the older son would get two-thirds of the inheritance while the younger receives one-third. Now, was he spoiling his son by indulging him? Uh, I don't think so. As the rest of the story will show, the, the father is being very patient with his son. Now, friends, do we realize that there are times when God gives us what we want so that we learn by experience the folly of our ways? You know, as, as a parent, maybe you understand this, right? Sometimes as a parent, you realize that it's not enough just to say no. Sometimes you say, okay. If, if that, you, you say to your child, if, if that's your course of action that you've chosen, go ahead but know that I'm here to pick up the pieces when things fall apart. Right? Some things are learned by experience. So the youngest son comes not wait to be free from his father and he says, not many days later, you know, he leaves for a far country. You know, not, not good enough just to go to the neighbouring city, but a far country, as far from his father as he can go. And he spends all he has in reckless. You know, the word reckless is where we get the word prodigal. It just means right? Prodigal means uh over-the-top extravagant spending. That's, that's what prodigal means. Right? Lavish spending. So the son spends all he has in prodigal living. And the youngest son makes a mess of his life, which again tells us that sin has consequences. We will reap what we sow. And he's so desperate that he's willing to even feed pigs for a Gentile, which is something unimaginable for a Jew to do. And he's fallen so low that he's literally living in the pigsty. Even pig food looks good to him, but he can't even have that. His employees won't even give him what the pigs are eating. The younger son's destitution depicts the destructiveness of sin. A life lived without God, will ultimately not end well. But at his lowest point, when he can, when he can go no lower, the younger son came to himself. Verse 17. You know There are times when God gives us over to our sins, not to crush us, but to break us, to humble us, so that we see for ourselves with our own eyes, the depth of our depravity. And that's not a bad thing. So friends, if you're feeling the weight of your sin this morning, if if you're feeling particularly broken, don't despair. Don't despair. God is calling you back to Himself. It's a grace of God that you see these things about yourself. He's calling you back by showing you your need of Him. And that's good news. I I love that old hymn, Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus, ready, waits to save you, full of pity, love and power. Come, come, ye sinners, poor and needy. Now the younger son recalls his father's generosity to his hired servants. You know, he, he knows that his father is a good boss. And if his father is a, is a good and merciful boss, chances are his father might receive him back. So he decides to return to his father and to cast himself on his father's mercy. He says, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And against you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. You know, just treat me as one of the hired servants. You know, before the younger son had demanded things from his father, but now he resolves to go humbly to his father. He he asserts no rights, he bears nothing but his need. You know, he, he doesn't seek the place of honor, but he's content with the lowest place. You know, a, a hired servant was the lowest place even lower than the slaves of that household. Hired servants was like a contract worker, not considered even a part of the household. But he's content even with that. He comes, he doesn't blame shift, and he confesses the real issue. I have sinned against God and against you. Now we may have heard repentance described as a change of mind. This is true, But it may lead us to think that repentance is just intellectual. I I know my sin and I know it's wrong. I know I should do what's right. Yes, repentance involves that, but it's more than that. The youngest son shows us that true repentance involves a a godly grief, a a genuine sorrow over sin. Not, Not simply because we are suffering the consequences of sin, but sorrow because we have sinned against God. We have sinned against others. We we understand the relational cost of sin. True repentance is also humble. As we come to God, we confess our sins to Him, and we bring nothing. We simply acknowledge that we deserve nothing from Him. We're entitled to nothing from Him except His righteous judgment against us. But while the youngest son is still a long way off, his father sees him and has compassion. Now the next part is, it's it's a bit funny, because distinguished Middle Eastern fathers do not run, right? I mean, they wore long robes, right? So in order to run, You have to, as we read, gird up your loins, expose your legs, and then run. It's quite comical. So if you are a distinguished patriarch of a family, you wouldn't run. It's not acceptable. But the father doesn't care. He's too joyful to worry about protocol. So he runs to his son, and like the shepherd finding the lost sheep or the woman finding the lost coin, the father rejoices over this son who was lost but now is found. The father's response is totally unexpected. It would have been right for him, you know, culturally acceptable for him to disown his son. Perhaps even have his son put to death for the deep disgrace that the son has brought on the family. You know, in those days when a son brings this kind of disgrace to the family, you know, he can't simply waltz up after so long, apologize, and expect to be restored. It doesn't happen. To regain his status, he, the son, would have to first work to make amends. And then we'll see, you're on probation. You're a hired servant until I tell you so. That would have been the culturally acceptable thing for the father to do. You know, my friends, see, see how the father shows grace before his son's confession. Not after, but before. You know, in fact, he doesn't even let his son finish his prepared speech. Before the son can even get to the part about treat me as one of your hired servants, the father interjects. And the father receives him back freely, giving him the best robe, a ring, and shoes, all signs of his full acceptance as a son. Now friends, this this is a crucial point in the parable. Repentance, yes, it's necessary if we are to return to God. But, But friends, listen to this carefully. We repent because God is gracious. We repent because God is gracious. We don't repent in order to earn His favor. We repent because He Is already gracious and merciful, just as this Father. You know how he runs to the Son before he even hears from the Son. So, friends, our assurance, our security, our peace of mind is not found in how well I repent. My assurance is ultimately founded on this gracious and compassionate Father receives me as His child because of His grace. Now, some of us are parents who are grieving over the, Lord, over the spiritual condition of our children. Now, this parable reminds us that our comfort and hope are found in a Heavenly Father who delights to show grace to those who have turned away. Now This parable gives parents like me a lot of encouragement and hope. It helps me to press on in faith and faithfulness, trusting in a compassionate God, realizing that this God is far more compassionate to my children than I could ever be to them. This parable gives me courage to pray and to entrust my children to Him. And parents, I pray that all of us would be able to do this as well as we know this God ourselves. May we also reflect his compassion and mercy to our children as we point them to Jesus. So, like the first two parables, this one also culminates in a great celebration. You know, meat was reserved for special occasions, and no meat was more special than good steak. So the fattened calf, right? Like good wagyu beef. So they, they kill the, the fattened calf and then no expense is spared to celebrate the return of his son because his son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now this lavish feast is a picture of God's prodigal grace, right? thrift, lavish, over the top prodigal. God is a graciously prodigal God. You know, you know the title of the book. This lavish feast is a picture of His grace and it points to the great banquet that awaits God's people, the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the, the, the first two parables kind of end at this point, right, with the celebration, and we expect the third parable to do the same, to end at verse 24. But it doesn't. Unlike the first two parables, this parable has an additional character the elder brother. He isn't at the party because he was at work in the field. Unlike his younger brother, this brother has been the dutiful son, hard at work. But when he hears of his father celebrating his brother's safe return, He gets angry. And ironically, he also dishonours his father like his younger brother because he refuses to go in, refuses to accept the host's invitation. The supposed insider remains outside. Again, the father responds graciously to his son. Now, he could have commanded the older son to go in, but He does not. The the father actually goes to his son. Again, very surprising. And he doesn't go to his son to scold his son. He goes to the son to plead, to entreat with his son. But how does the elder brother respond? You notice his response. He doesn't even call his father, father. He just says, hey, look here. Look here, these many years I have served you, I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you know, notice how he refuses to call him even brother? You know, this son of yours, when he comes, you, what do you do? You, you, you kill the fattened calf for him. You know, you've got to hear what he's saying, right? He's saying, what kind of father are you? What kind of father are you? That's so unfair. That's so unfair. This is a pretty serious accusation of the father. That's why, friends, I said, if we struggle to show grace, we have a completely wrong understanding of the father. How can you give this son of yours what he doesn't deserve when you won't even give me what I deserve? Sound familiar? What does this reveal about the elder brother? He is like the religious leaders grumbling against Jesus. He is full of self-righteous indignation, thinking his dutiful service earns him the right to be treated better than his wayward brother. But friends, is this really obedience? Is this really obedience? No, it's mere compliance. It's grudging compliance. The older brother isn't motivated by love for his father, but by a selfish desire to get what he wants from his father. Maybe not a fattened calf, but at least a goat. His relationship with his father is transactional, bound by legalistic duty. You know, the irony is that he's a son, but he lives as though he's a slave, working to earn his keep. Therefore, because he sees himself as a slave, because he sees his father as just a boss he is unable and unwilling to share in his father's joy. On the surface, the older brother looks like an obedient son. But friends, his heart is as far from his father as his younger brother. So both sons are lost. Both sons are lost. And I will put it to us, That the elder brother even more so because he doesn't even realize how lost he is. Yet the father lovingly calls him son, my child, and assures him that all that is mine is yours. I'm not expecting you to work to earn this, but I'm gracious to you. And he wants the older brother to see that. the, the, The father assures his older son that he loves him as much as his rebellious sibling. Friends, this is a parable for religious people like us. This is a parable for religious people like us. I see many of us are here on a Sunday, those of us watching at home on Sunday morning. Chances are we probably don't feel like the prodigal, the younger son, but are we like the older one? Many of us are regular churchgoers with many years of dutiful service. We can do all the right Christian things and yet be far from God. So what what is our relationship with God like? How do you really view God? As a father or as a boss? You know, when, you know we, we talk a lot about reading the Bible, right? So when, we come to, when it comes to reading the Bible, do we view reading the Bible as a bit like, I need to read my boss's email? Or do we see it as, of course I'd love to read a letter from my loving father? Which one is it? Do we see ourselves as children, or as employees, or, or slaves, working to earn our boss's favour? Are we giving him real obedience? or mere compliance. And and friends, a, a deeper question is to ask ourselves this. Do we get disappointed, bitter and angry with God when life doesn't go our way? Think about that. Do we get bitter with God when life doesn't go our way because we think we deserve better? because we think our service has earned us better treatment from Him. We don't have to leave the church to be a prodigal. As Keller says in his well-known book, The Prodigal God, he says, you can rebel against God and be alienated from Him, either by breaking the rules or by keeping all of them diligently. Friends, if you want to think more about this parable, I highly recommend this book by Keller, The Prodable God. It's a wonderful meditation on this parable that we've been looking at. So friends, where do we see ourselves in this story? Are we like the younger or the older brother? Whether we are religious or irreligious, moral or immoral, we are all sinners in need of grace from our loving Heavenly Father. All that is His is ours, not because we have earned it, but because He is merciful. And only the power of God's self-giving grace can melt our hearts and transform our self-centred, licentious, or legalistic hearts to love Him. How deep the Father's love for us. He did not spare His own Son, His obedient Son, but he sent him to be the older brother we all need. Unlike the elder brother in the parable, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. He bore our guilt and shame and died in our place so that we can be brought back to the Father. And he rose from the dead to give us to give us life as God's sons and daughters. Friends, our our Heavenly Father calls us to return to Him by repenting of our rebellion and of our self-righteousness. He calls us to rejoice with Him when the lost is found because it is necessary to celebrate and be glad. It is necessary to reflect our Father's joy. Friends, May we be a church of Father-like love, mercy and compassion, not a church of elder brothers. The parable ends and we don't know how the older brother responded but we do know that Corrie Ten Boom forgave her former captor and then she said of that moment, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. How will we respond to our gracious Heavenly Father? Friends, will we share in His joy? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we come to you now as humble children. Father, we come and we pray that you would work in our hearts as we've heard about you from your word. Father, help us to see you for who you really are, a compassionate, a merciful, a patient and gracious Father. Father, we pray that you would help us to turn away from any wrong thoughts about you that we may have. Help us to turn away from any false ideas of you that exist in our thoughts and in our hearts. And Father, help us to turn to you, to know you for who you really are. Father, we thank you for Jesus who has opened up the way for us to approach you, whom you have sent for us and for our salvation. We thank you for him. We thank you for such a loving older brother who was willing to lay down his life to bring back those who do not deserve saving. Oh Father, we pray that you would humble us now in this moment. Father, as we consider the state of our relationship with you, help us to desire you and to draw near to you by your grace. Strengthen us, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.